0: Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. Here at Washington University in St. Louis, we're continuing to grapple with the events of the past few weeks in nearby Ferguson, Missouri. Clarissa Ryle Hayward, Associate Professor of Political Science, is one of several professors who have recently written about the protests and unrest. What you're about to hear is an episode that we first released last November, in which Hayward discusses her book, How Americans Make Race Stories, Institutions, Spaces. The book has since won the American Political Science Association's prize for the best book in urban politics. For a link to Hayward's recent blog post about Ferguson in the Washington Post, please visit holdthatthought.wustl.edu. Oh, okay. um.
1: You are listening, listening to Hold That Thought
0: from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm your host Claire Navarro. For today's episode, we're joined by Clarissa Ryle Hayward, Associate Professor of Political Science here at Washington University in St. Louis. Hayward's recently released book is How Americans Make Race: Stories, Institutions, Spaces. For the next 10 minutes or so, keep those three ideas in mind, stories, institutions, spaces. Because as Hayward will explain, all three of these things play significant and interrelated roles in how we think about ourselves and about race, sometimes without us even being aware of it.
1: So the book is really about identity in general, and then more specifically, it's about race.
0: Let's start with the first big idea from the book's subtitle, Stories. How do stories relate to race and identity? My field is political theory.
1: And in political and social theory, there's a very prevalent view really that the way people create and recreate and learn and relearn identities is as stories.
0: So stories like bedtime stories? Well, sort of,
1: yes. So if I think of the story that I tell myself at the end of the day about what happened to me, or if you were to ask me at this moment you know, to sort of tell you the story of my life, I would tell you a personal identity narrative. At the same time, we construct social identity narratives about, for instance, who we are as
0: Americans or who we are as African Americans, for instance. For this book, Hayward was most interested in that last type of narrative, the kind that helps construct ideas about race. To explore this issue, she looked at changes that occurred to racial identity narratives between the early and middle part of the 20th century, so around the 19-teens to after World War II. Sometimes these types of stories pop up in places you really might not expect. One example is real estate textbooks from the 1920s. Just as the real estate profession was coming into being, training materials were telling explicit stories about how Black and white Americans could and should and should not interact.
1: Beginning in the 20s, the narrative is that these are profoundly different groups of people with different characteristics and specifically that African Americans have characteristics that make them unfit for private home ownership and for having access to particular high-quality neighborhoods. And the claim is that real estate agents ought to keep these groups separate and that if they fail to, there will be a loss in value in the properties in the racially exclusive
0: areas. This type of explicitly racist narrative has roots in earlier narratives about race. At the beginning of the 20th century, the story was that different races were fundamentally biologically different. Fast forward a few decades, however, to the 1940s, and the narrative begins to shift dramatically.
1: So, at the level of scientific discourse, there are a lot of advances in our understanding and essentially the old biological narrative is proven false. And there's an emerging consensus among scientists that there's not a biological basis to this concept. At the same time, in the US, because of our involvement in World War II and because we wanted to distance ourselves from Nazis who were enemies in World War II, There is a change in the normative discourse about how it is that the races ought to treat one another.
0: In other words, to argue after World War II that there should be a hierarchy based on race is a much harder case to make than it was in, say, 1910 or 1920. But here's where the big puzzle comes in. If identity really is based on narrative, As the story about race changed in the 1940s, shouldn't behavior and thinking about racial identity have rapidly changed also? But that didn't happen. American neighborhoods remained segregated. Racist attitudes persisted. Why? For part of the answer, think back to Hayward's book title. Stories are only part of, well, the story. Now we turn to institutions. So
1: during The early decades of the 20th century, for instance, we saw a lot of legal norms constructed through the New Deal that literally incorporated this story of racial identity that I had referred to. So, for example, if you think about uh, the Federal Housing Administration, its early policies very explicitly incorporated this early racial narrative.
0: You may have heard this type of phenomenon called institutionalized or structural racism, Part of what's so unsettling about this type of racism is that it's so hard to change. Narratives evolve, but laws and institutions, they tend to stick around.
1: If you imagine a white homebuyer, say in the late 1940s or early 1950s, who is convinced of the revisions to the racial narrative that have happened over the course of the 1940s. So she no longer believes this old racial story about biological difference. She no longer believes it's right or appropriate to segregate people based on race. She no longer believes this narrative of race and investment risk. Nevertheless, that narrative has been built into FHA policies. If she wants to get a federally backed mortgage for her home, she has to act as if she believes the old story. She has to purchase her home in a racially exclusive white neighborhood because the FHA would not insure homes that were situated in
0: non-segregated neighborhoods. The idea that you can't break out of this sort of racist system is disturbing enough, but remember there's a third idea we still have to address. Hayward's book title refers to stories, institutions, and spaces. She argues that in addition to laws and systems, places, like segregated neighborhoods, also perpetuate ideas about racial identity. In this way, narratives are both institutionalized and objectified. To help us get our heads around these concepts, Hayward uses an example that doesn't have anything to do with race, Argentine tango.
1: Tango dancing, Argentine tango dancing, as traditionally performed, is very strongly gendered, and it's got a very traditional gender narrative that informs it, where you have an active male lead, a passive female follow, the female is graceful, she's never assertive, you know, you can fill in all the details. Institutionalization means we take this narrative and we build it into a series of, in this case, rules or standards for appropriately dancing
0: tango. So the steps of the dance, who leads, who follows, basically the rules. That's institutionalization. Next up, objectification.
1: Objectification, the example I like to use here is the construction of the tango shoe itself, which is actually built in such a way that it helps the dancer maintain balance while walking backwards. So when you slip the shoes on, they literally tilt the axis of your body forward and enable you to feel
0: the lead and walk backwards. So shoes designed to compel you to follow the institutionalized rules, that's objectification. And as with the example of the potential homebuyer in the 1940s, once these types of rules and objects are in place, it's hard to not follow the rules.
1: So the point there is that you could take someone, an individual who completely rejects the gender narrative that informs this dance, But if they want to get the rewards that accompany tango dancing, which is things like being asked to dance, being viewed by others as doing it properly, they have to act as if they believe the narrative. And when they slip the shoe on, at a bodily level, they're gonna be induced to act as if they believe
0: that narrative. So let's get back to race and identity. Hayward's point is that spaces and neighborhoods, like shoes, can be objectified.
1: If in the city that you live in, as is the case in St. Louis, you're able to have a sense, even without necessarily articulating the origins, you're able to have a sense that there are black parts of the city, that there are white parts of the city. That keeps alive this very notion of a set of racial categories, you know, that black itself or African-American itself or white itself is a socially meaningful category, that very notion is reproduced by the fact that our built environment mirrors to us or suggests to us that it's the case.
0: In How Americans Make Race, Hayward tracks how these types of phenomenons affect people's identities today, in 2013. For the book, she interviewed about 30 people from three different types of neighborhoods the interviews were structured in a way that was meant to tease out the relationship between people's individual and social identities. There's two parts to the interview. The first is a life history narrative. So I
1: simply asked my respondents to tell me how you came to be who you are and where you are today, and I just let them talk. And then the second, after that, I did a semi-structured interview in which I prompted them to name identity groups to which they thought they belonged. And then I asked them a series of questions about those
0: identities. Among these interviews, one stood out in particular. Hayward calls this respondent Calvin Moore.
1: His interview was striking to me because there was a tremendous disjuncture between his life
0: narrative and the semi-structured interview. When I first heard this, I was a bit confused. Both sections of the interview are about a person's identity. So why wouldn't they fit together? To find out, first, let's hear about how Calvin Moore talked about his own life story.
1: He sort of told about a series of conflicts that he'd had with other individuals and also internal conflicts. And he essentially said, I'm a person who has a lot of rage and I've had a lot of physical conflicts throughout my life that ended up getting me kicked out of school and losing jobs and etc." And then he said, what Followed was a series of tragedies, loss of family members. It was two children killed in a house fire, like really a series of very shattering tragedies. And he interpreted these as acts of God that were meant to signal to him that he needed to change his way. And then he said that he is now trying to do that and to turn his
0: life around. The second part of the interview presented a very different story.
1: His semi-structured interview was really, really different because he was able to articulate very clearly and to critique what we would think of as structural racism. So all the ways that his life and his community were shaped by racial hierarchy and racial inequalities. And so this interview, I chose to use it because it was striking to me that Many of the things that happened to Calvin throughout his life could be very clearly explained, at least partly, by structural racism, but he didn't do it when he told his life story. Instead, he told a story in which the bad things that happened to him were the product of bad choices he had made and God's punishment of him.
0: Hayward believes that this sort of disconnect is not that unusual. In fact, it's part of what makes structural racism so deeply ingrained in American culture.
1: My argument in the book, or part of my argument in the book, is that when we institutionalize and objectify these racial narratives, it's very depoliticizing.
0: Basically, as humans, we use stories to make sense of things. And without those stories, it's difficult to find out what the problem really is, who's to blame, or how to fight against it. And this is true with all types of structural inequality.
1: So in other words, if an individual came up to you and discriminated against you as a woman, you know, said, I'm not going to give you the job because you're female, at the end of the day, you would surely narrate that because this this is the way we see the world as characters doing things to one another. However, if we had a background set of norms or rules or expectations that structured in a way that was inegalitarian your ability to get a job... Even if you knew that, at the end of the day when you came home and you didn't get the job, you very likely would not narrate those structures as part of your story.
0: Importantly, this isn't just true for people who are being discriminated against. Let's say you benefit from structural racism. Without the help of characters and plotline, Hayward found that people tend to leave out these truths from their own life narratives.
1: For the white respondents, especially these very affluent white respondents who are living in a predominantly white community, they're able to write out of the story of their everyday lives their own privilege and the fact that racial inequality is also structuring the lives that they're living.
0: So overall, narratives are deeply important for how Americans build their identities. But according to Hayward, stories aren't the only way. And they're not even the most important way that identity formation takes place. When it comes to inspiring change and action towards social justice, not all stories are created equal.
1: The point I try to make with this, or where I would try to go with this argument is to suggest that it's never enough just to change the narrative because we do have much more sophisticated and thoughtful and critical and I would say much more just narratives about race today in 2013 than we did in 1913 or 1923. What I would argue is that a certain kind of critical narrative is important and that's one that points to specific institutional changes and specific changes in the built environment that it then motivates us to put into effect. So in other words, to truly change the way we practice racial identities, we need to tell the kind of stories that motivate us to change institutions and to change physical spaces as well.
0: Many thanks to Clarissa Ryle Hayward for contributing to Hold That Thought. Her book, How Americans Make Race, Stories, Institutions, Spaces, is available through Cambridge University Press and Amazon. You can find a link to Hayward's faculty profile on our website. We're at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu.